what I simply cannot understand is why on earth you would want to go back. Well, I know not how many of my publications you have read, Professor Dawkins, but I ought to emphasize the fact that I most certainly did not want to come back. You say that now, but in any case, why did you? Thanks for listening. This is All About Jack, a C.S. Lewis podcast. I'm William O'Flaherty. What you're hearing is the sixth episode of an eight-part series focusing on a book by Peter S. Williams called C.S. Lewis vs. the New Atheist. If you have listened to previous programs, then you know that the author himself is with me today, and he will be joining in shortly. If you haven't heard the past shows in this series or other interviews I've done, then be sure to visit EssentialCSLewis.com, where you can find my archives and other content related to C.S. Lewis. Or if you just want to check out the podcast, that can be more easily done by going directly to where the files are hosted at allaboutjack.podbean.com. Podbean is spelled P-O-D-B-E-A-N. Again, allaboutjack.podbean.com. I'm going to let my co-host actually introduce Peter S. Williams, but I need to first welcome him back. His first name is also Peter, but he has a different last name. It's Byram. Thanks for returning, Peter B. Thank you, William. It's good to be with you, and that's not a problem for me at all. Well, Peter B. is a freelance video editor, and among other things, is a strong advocate of defending the Christian faith through apologetics. Now, I'll let him introduce our guest. Certainly. I'm happy to introduce Peter S. Williams. He is a Christian philosopher and apologist. He is the assistant professor in communication and worldviews at Gimla Collins School of Journalism and Communication. That's part of NLA University in Norway. Peter also works with the UK Damaris Trust, leading philosophy conferences for A-level students and undertaking writing, speaking, debating and broadcasting engagements. Peter has authored several books, including A Faithful Guide to Philosophy, A Skeptic's Guide to Atheism and C.S. Lewis versus the New Atheists. Welcome back to the show, Peter S. Williams. It's great to be with you guys again. All right. Well, I'll kick off our questions for this chapter which uh, is, again, called The Problem of Goodness. Well, let's go pretty basic here. Why is it a problem, and who is it a problem for? Well, the the reality of of goodness, just as much as the reality of of evil, uh, is something that uh, everyone trying to construct a a worldview, a kind of coherent understanding, a picture of reality, um, has to grapple with and try and fit within um, their view of reality. Um, particularly struggling with the question of of is uh, good and evil are they purely subjective realities that um, depend upon us and our our tastes our decisions our choices and so on or are they objective realities are they um, facts of the matter as it were um, that we can uh, be wrong or right about uh, depending on what the facts of the matter are uh, and for Lewis, he uh, soon realized that in order for evil to even seem problematical uh, in terms of believing in a, in a god, that uh, that evil had to be an objective reality. Um, he couldn't simply be saying, um, if there's a god, he seems to allow stuff that I personally don't like as it were, uh, he he needed to be saying that um, if there's a God, he seems to allow things that he really ought not to allow. 
and therefore that's a problem for belief in God. So there had to be this sort of sense of objectivity uh, about evil and thus about goodness, what is uh, uh, evil, uh, the concept of evil without the concept of goodness, and therefore there was a sort of parallel problem uh, to the problem of, of evil, if there was uh, objective good and bad, there was also the problem of, of goodness. Well, what sort of thing, uh, objectively speaking, is goodness, is value, moral values, moral duties, and so on? And what worldview um, does the existence of such objective values, uh, whether good or evil, uh, uh, most comfortably fit with? Uh, and indeed, uh, Lewis, of course, and um, famously in the beginning of um, what's now mere Christianity, um, puts uh, versions of, of the uh, the moral argument for God. Um, so uh, Lewis kind of starting out as an atheist, uh, thinking that the, the problem of evil uh, gave him justification for being an atheist, uh, then came to, to think about, through thinking about the, the nature of, of, of goodness and of evil as objective realities. Uh, that maybe things weren't quite as straightforward as that, uh, and maybe um, they actually pointed towards the existence of God as, as a as a standard by which one could judge things to be good or or evil. Um, there's a f- famous uh, quote that I have in the book where Lewis um, says this: "He says my argument against God was that the universe seemed so cruel and unjust, but how had I got this idea of just?" and unjust a man doesn't call a line crooked unless he has some idea of a straight line Um, and lewis thinks but but if if this world is all there is and there is no transcendent realm there is no supernatural there is just the world um as the materialist sees it um then there is no sort of system transcending standard by which we can make these these judgments of of objective value um, that the the problem of evil needs, and therefore raising the problem of evil actually raises this issue of well, where where is the standard, and what worldview does uh, the uh, existence of such a standard most plausibly imply? So that was interesting. That that was a particular problem of goodness, a sort of moral argument that struck Lewis while he was an atheist. Now let's come back to the new atheists of today. Dawkins, Hitchens, Grayling, Den, and so forth. Um, you quote in this chapter the biblical scholar Craig Hazen, uh, who says that the primary technique the new atheists have adopted for dealing with the issue of the origin or grounding of the moral law is obfuscation. The new atheists are very fond of saying, we don't need God to be good. So how do the new atheists obfuscate on this? And what would Lewis have to say about that? How would he call him out on this if they're obfuscating? Uh, well, to obfuscate is, is to simply um, get off topic, really, here in this context. Uh, I think Lewis would just um, have to patiently uh, point out that the moral argument is not making any claims uh, along the lines of you need to believe in God or believe in the Bible as a revelation from God or whatever, in order to know about right and wrong, or know what the right thing to do is. Nor is the argument that Wade with Lewis making any claims about moral psychology, about needing to believe in God in order to have the sort of psychological wherewithal uh, to do the right thing. Uh, rather, the, the issue 
is a is a philosophical question of of ontology of what exists of um is there objective value in reality be that goodness or badness is there objective value and what worldview best accommodates the existence of such a thing uh, so that the moral argument is arguing that in order for there to be such a thing as right and wrong that of course atheists can know about and that of course atheists can uh, follow uh, moral duties and so on but in order for there to be such a thing as moral duties for them to follow or know about uh, does there have to be a god in reality as well whether or not anyone believes in him or um, finds strength in their belief in him uh, in their moral life psychologically speaking the question is um, is there uh, an actual metaphysical linkage as it were between the existence of objective value and the existence of god such that you can't have uh, the one without the other and if Lewis were, if we picture Lewis debating someone like Dawkins or Hitchens, and they say that uh, whole thing about, you know, uh, we don't need God to be, you know, in order to be good. We don't need commands from on high. And, and you know, and they start going down that rabbit trail. How do you reckon he would um, intersect that and try to bring it back yeah. to the real issue? Um, perhaps he would begin by uh, absolutely agreeing with them and saying uh, something like, yes, of course, you don't need to believe in God in order to know the difference between right and wrong. Um, as I point out in the appendix to my little uh, uh, book on the abolition of man, uh, you will see I, I collect there uh, a list of uh, quotations from ancient cultures across the world, uh, from uh, ancient Egypt to uh, the Greeks and so on, uh, all showing that they all had this uh, same innate sense of the basic moral concepts upon which they agreed and that the, this is um, some uh, reason to uh, to think that moral objectivism is uh, not a strange belief to hold uh, indeed it is the majority belief of all cultures throughout history um, that there are these uh, uh, moral values uh, that we can know about um, that uh, is a, a question uh, about um, the values that we're, we're pointing to, the moral argument that I'm defending, he would say, is a question about how we explain uh, those values that all of these different uh, cultures and writers throughout history uh, have clearly known about, even though uh, they may not have had a belief uh, in God or a particular revelation from God. Now, parts of this chapter are called, or in, in the subsection, ontology not epistemology and ontology not psychology for those unfamiliar with these terms uh, what do they mean in the context of the moral argument and are you implying that the new atheists have a tendency to evade ontology they, they certainly do have a tendency to evade this ontology that is um the ontology is that the philosophical uh, uh, subject area that looks at what exists what is real um, so when we're asking questions about the nature of goodness and badness, what sort of thing are goodness and badness, and particularly the debate over whether or not ethics are uh, objective or merely subjective, uh, then we're, there, uh, we're looking in the, the area of, of moral ontology and the question of how do we um, explain the existence of such a thing, what um, metaphysical worldview uh, best accommodates 
uh, objective moral facts as um, as the saying goes part of the furniture of the universe as it were um, epistemology is the philosophical area about how we know things um, so that would be questions about well, how do we know the difference between right and wrong how do we know that it's right to love our children and it's wrong uh, to torture small children just for fun and so on how do we know those moral facts um Whereas ontology is, is, is uh, um, that they are facts and um, what uh, implications uh, metaphysically are there for that uh, from, follows from them being facts. Um, moral psychology would be more to do with um, how do we get the sort of um, the psychological wherewithal or, or oomph, uh, to use a non-technical term, to actually do the right thing. It's all very well knowing what the right thing to do is, but it's quite another uh, thing, of course, to do uh, the right thing uh, a matter of uh, of moral character or looking at sort of aristotelian virtue ethics where you're looking at ethics in terms of um, character formation uh, so these are are, are separate but uh, separate topics um, that tend to overlap in the area of, of ethics and morality um, but the the moral argument for god is not an argument about moral psychology about how we get the power to do the right thing once we know it. It's not a question of moral epistemology of, of how is it that we know that certain things are the right thing to do or the wrong thing to do, but a question of how come there are, there are such things as being the right thing to do or um, having a duty uh, to behave or not behave in certain ways and what, what metaphysical view of reality uh can accommodate the existence of such values. Okay, so when we, on those occasions when um, the new atheists actually will comment on moral Mm. ontology rather than going down the sort of rabbit trails of moral epistemology and psychology, when it actually comes to what they say about moral ontology, Mm. um, you know, whether or not there actually are moral facts in that Mm. way, um, what what sort of stance do the new atheists Mm. have on moral ontology? I mean, is there even a consensus between them as to what they think about this? No, there's, there's not a consensus. I think it would be true to say that the majority of new atheist writers are actually moral subjectivists um, when they're actually directly addressing the issue of moral ontology uh, will really say that there are, there are no moral facts. Um, for example, Richard Dawkins um, says... Uh, for example, that there's a, an exhaustive distinction between um, questions about matters of fact and questions about value or, or, or morals, um, and that there, uh, so that uh, questions of morals or values are not questions of matters of fact at all. Um, so clearly, he's a, a moral uh, subjectivist rather than an objectivist. There, um, Sam Harris, however is a moral objectivist uh, and published a a, a book um, defending uh, moral objectivism, uh, but arguing that um, an empirical study that science could indeed 
give you not only give you moral moral knowledge, but that you didn't need to go uh, to a, a theistic view of things in order to uh, explain or understand the existence of objective moral values that science, as it were, could um, encompass the study of uh, of morality entirely. Um, whereas um, you know, Dawkins in saying this distinction between facts um, that are investigated empirically and so on and, and values uh, doesn't uh, buy into that. So there, there's not a consensus. Uh, Harris is an objectivist, morally speaking, uh, just uh, wouldn't buy into the other element of the, the moral argument, uh, whereas most of the new atheists would actually deny that there are uh, objective values, uh, which is uh, an interesting thing to bear in mind when those neo-atheists are condemning uh, religious people for the uh, evils that they do uh, or for um, the intellectual failings of failing to live up to their epistemological obligations and so on, um, they seem uh, uh, certainly to uh, be wanting to criticise religious people at various stages for not living up to certain values um, but one has to remember that um, although they're using the language of values, when when you ask them directly, when you look at what do they directly mean by those terms, um, they uh, clearly have a, a subjectivist uh, view of values. So um, that's sort of giving with one hand and taking away with the other. Mm, quite interesting there. Now, you criticize Sam Harris for raising the youth throw argument against the moral argument. What is this argument, and why is it wrong for the new atheist to use it? And did Lewis himself make any concessions towards it? Okay, sure. So th- this is an argument that goes back to uh, one of Plato's dialogues, in which a character asks um, if um, that which is right is right because the gods command it, or do the gods command us to do certain things because it is right so are things right because the gods or god commands us to behave that way or does god command us to behave in certain ways because it is right and the the fallacy here of trying to use this as an as an argument against grounding the objectivity of values in god uh, is that uh, to say that well on the one hand if things are right and wrong just because God commands it, then he could command literally anything. And so the distinction between right and wrong uh, is no longer necessary, but um, subjective, as it were. Uh, anything could have been or become right and wrong, according to God's whim, as it were. But if you pick the other horn of the dilemma and you say, no, God commands us to behave in certain ways because they are right or because it is wrong to do that, that therefore that shows that the grounding of that objectivity, of that normativity, uh, is not something that is tied up with the existence of God. Uh, because God commands it uh, because it is good, uh, its being good uh, has nothing to do with God. Actually, what it shows is it has nothing to do with God's whim or with the fact that he commands it. But there is more to God than the fact that he commands certain things. And so the the classical way of splitting the horns of this dilemma is to say, um, no, of course, morality is not arbitrary. It's not just because God says or commands it that things are right and wrong. Um, He does command things because they are 
objectively speaking, right to do. Um, but that uh, normativity is grounded not in God's commanding it, but in God's character, in um, the essence of God's nature, that God is in, in platonic terms, as it were, he is the good, the form of the good. Um, so it's God's character uh, that is the, the transcendent standard of right and wrong. And God issues commands to us that are in line with his necessary uh, good uh, essence. Um, and indeed, Lewis, uh, who uh, very well knew his Plato, cautioned in this area. He said that uh, saying that God made the moral law might suggest that it was an arbitrary creation. Uh, whereas I believe, he says, I believe it to be the necessary expression of what God of his own righteous nature necessarily is. Uh, and uh, Lewis uh, agrees with an earlier thinker who um, made this response called Hooker. He says, I think with Hooker, not that certain things are right because God commands them, but that God commands them because they are right. Um, but nonetheless, um, we still need some way of grounding uh, and explaining the existence of uh, this normativity that uh, objective values have. And there are a number of reasons that have gone into it in the chapter and in, in the moral argument and so on why um, God's character uh, explains that. Um, the God's commands don't explain the existence of objective moral facts. It's his character that explains them. Um, if uh, God's commands explain anything, uh, that might be tied up with uh, the question of epistemology, of how come we know uh, uh, right and wrong. Maybe uh, there's something about conscience and you know, the voice of God in conscience and so on. Um, there, but um, the moral argument, as we we said earlier, is to do with with the ontological question, uh, and the moral argument ties the existence of objective moral norms um, to the existence of of God's essential character. I can't help but notice as well, Peter, um, when you're explaining how the Euthyphro dilemma is actually a false dilemma. I think there might be a bit of um, a rhetorical trick to the euthyphro dilemma as it's presented, because when you think about those, that combination of words, is something good because God commands it, or does God command it because it is good? I think people can get tricked into thinking that because there are only two combinations of how to use those words, you know, in a sort of vice versa way, you know, good because God commands it or God commands it because it's good. People can actually forget that, well, it might be something else as well. We might be needing to use different words. You know, it might be about, as you say, God's nature as well. So I think that's very interesting how even um, the way that the Etherfro argument is articulated can actually um, dupe people a little bit into not realizing it's a false dilemma. Yeah, yeah, it's a false dilemma to to assume that all there is to to God or could be to God uh, in bringing him in as an explanation for morality is his commands, <laughs> as it were. As it, yeah, all God is 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 commands, but there is there is someone who is issuing those commands, and that someone has a a moral character and nature uh, of being the greatest possible being, as as Anselm put it. Yeah, exactly. Just because you can rhetorically rearrange the words, it doesn't mean it's an actual um, sort of a or not a contradiction. Yeah. Well, now, last of all, um, you highlight a distinction between is and ought statements in your end note of the chapter number uh, 94. But David Hume, the atheist 
philosopher presented, but Lewis nonetheless endorsed. So what is this is-ought distinction and how does it relate to our topic here? Mm. Well, David Hume was was certainly sceptical of natural theology and is uh, famous, among many other things, uh, for this distinction between uh, is uh, and ought. It's rather like Dawkins um, saying, you know, there are matters of fact on the one hand that are empirically investigatable, and then there are questions of morality, and that the matters of fact are empirically investigatable, but the matters of morality are not matters of fact. Now, of course, David Hume in this uh, is or dis- distinction says that um, the, the is is about uh, describing things kind of naturalistically speaking, as it were, uh, describing things without any prescriptive or moral content to them as, as facts. And he says, however many such things you have, um, you can't get to any objective sense of moral uh, prescriptive content or moral value by simply rearranging things that are just purely um, descriptive without any objectivity of, of, of prescription or normativity of value in them. And, and Lewis agrees with this and says it's a, as a distinction with great merit. And, and Lewis says it, you, look, you can shuffle um, things like I want or I'm forced or I'll be well advised or I dare not as long as you please without getting out of them the slightest hint of I ought or I ought not, uh, objectively uh, speaking. Um, even uh, Sam Harris at one point observes that the philosopher G.E. Moore uh, declared that any attempt to locate moral truths, or what we might say moral facts, in the natural world was to commit a naturalistic fallacy uh, because it would always be appropriate to ask uh, whether that property described within that materialistic naturalistic view of things as it were uh, were something that we should judge to be good or not uh, and that was a, a further open question um, so what uh, in terms of the, the moral argument to bring it back to that is uh, is by saying no actually there are moral facts and um, there is um, a sense of uh, of normativity, of pre- prescription, of moral facthood uh, within the character of God as the greatest possible being, um, that uh, there are true descriptions of reality that do include value, that there are moral facts, and that therefore we can make arguments that have uh, moral prescriptions, moral facts as their conclusions, uh, conclusions that are true or false, depending on the moral facts of the matter, and that can be uh, argued uh, for or against, um, rather than morality simply being a matter of of subjective uh, whim. Sadly, I need to jump in and wrap up today's program. Today's show has again been focusing on Chapter 5 of C.S. Lewis versus the New Atheist. That chapter is called The Problem of Goodness. We encourage people again to get a copy of C.S. Lewis versus the New Atheist to go more in-depth into the material we've been covering today, as well as to read more about the other chapters that we've covered as well. Well, I'm William O'Flaherty, the creator of this All About Jack, a C.S. Lewis podcast. If this is your first time listening to this series on Peter S. Williams' book or my program in general, you will want to be sure to check the show notes for links mentioned in the episode. You can do this by going to EssentialCSLewis.com, or you can go to directly where the audio files are hosted. That's a little bit easier for most people, allaboutjack.podbean.com. Podbean is spelled P-O-D-B-E-A-N. 
You can also find those previous programs in the series of C.S. Lewis versus the New Atheist. And then I've done a variety of other single interviews and series. I did a four-part mini-series with Dr. Crystal Hurd on Lewis's view of women. Back a few years ago, when the first Hobbit movie was just coming out, Dr. Devin Brown, we did a series on a book he did, The Christian World of the Hobbit. And then even, uh, I think earlier that year, we, is when I did one with Dr. Michael Ward on the Narnia Code. So be sure to uh, check those out when you visit my website. Uh, next time, we're going to be exploring Chapter 6. It's entitled, Jesus in the Dock. Before going, though, I want to thank my co-host, Peter B., for being with me today again. Thanks, Peter. Thank you, William. And Peter S. Williams, thank you for being here as well. Thank you very much. And before we let you go, uh, Peter S., though, uh, you mentioned this already in an earlier program, uh, several back, that you have, uh, or you're, you're currently working on a forthcoming book. Now, depending on when people listen to this, if they listen to it later than when we release it, this book might be out already. But tell us what you're working on co-editing with the person I mentioned not that uh, long ago, Michael Ward. Uh, indeed, Michael Ward and myself are co-editing uh, a book called uh, C.S. Lewis at Poets' Corner, celebrating 50 years of Lewis's legacy since his uh, death and drawing together um, papers from a number of conferences that happened in November last year uh, around the 50th anniversary of C.S. Lewis's death, in particular the uh, unveiling of a memorial to Lewis in Poets' Corner uh, in Westminster Abbey uh, in London here in the UK, and uh, various conferences that happened in Cambridge uh, and Oxford, uh, as well as uh, London around those events. And before we finally let you go, uh, tell us about uh, what we will cover in some in the next chapter, the next podcast. Sure. Well, the next chapter is called Jesus in the Dock, spinning off a, a famous title that uh, Lewis himself used, of course. All right. Well, I hope everyone will listen into that as well as tell others about that program. And this is, again, All About Jack, a C.S. Lewis podcast. 